1 Timothy chapter 1, we will be reading starting at verse 18 of the first chapter and reading through chapter 2 to verse 8. I don't know if you've ever read, it's a small booklet, it's, there's a few different translations, you can get it for free in PDF format if you do a quick Google search. The title of this is The Art of War. It's by a Chinese general from thousands of years ago, Sun Tzu, Sun as in the sun in the sky, Tzu is T-Z-U. You can look this up and read through it. This, this booklet or this guide to the art of war has been used throughout the many centuries in our world. It was written by a Chinese general about how to engage in warfare, how to know yourself and know your enemy, and it has been applied in many different areas of life. It's been applied in personal life when you're fighting your own struggles or addictions. It's been applied in business settings. It's been applied in actual battle and war strategy. But there's a lot in there, a lot of quotes you can pull out. But one quote specifically, I went back over that document this past week in preparation for the sermon. One quote specifically that stood out to me is this. If you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. If you know yourself, but not the enemy, for every victory gained, you will also suffer a defeat. If you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you will succumb or lose every battle. What he was saying is it's important to know yourself, your own strengths and your own weaknesses but it's also important to know your enemy, not to underestimate your enemy, to know their strengths and to know their weaknesses. Well, this morning we're coming to a passage dealing with, sort of indirectly and sort of directly, spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare. And so as we come to this, what we're going to see is in order to fight spiritual warfare, your strongest weapon is prayer. And I just realized that rhymes. So, Shanez, you can write a song after that if you want, okay? Um, the, the, to fight spiritual warfare, if you're taking notes, your strongest weapon is prayer. Would you follow along with me, starting at verse 18 of chapter 1 in 1 Timothy? This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, 
the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Would you pray with me as we begin this sermon? Holy Spirit, would you help us to be dependent on you? And as evidence of that, would you make us people of prayer? And would you show us what that looks like from this passage and this sermon? In Jesus' name, amen. So I have three ideas to share with you from this passage that I'm pulling out of this passage. If you have your worship guide, the outline is there on the back if you want to take notes there. Or if you have a scripture journal, you can write these down in there. The first is that we are at war. I think in your worship guide, it says we're in a fight. Same idea, but I'm... I'm using the language of the text. We're at war. And then the second thing is, because we are at war, we should pray. And then the third thing is, and keep praying. <laughs> let's emphasize that point. We're at war, so let's pray and keep praying. So if you have your Bible, keep that open to 1 Timothy. I want to show you what I mean by we are at war. Paul is writing to Timothy. He reminds Timothy, you're my child. I love you. I'm entrusting to you what God has entrusted to me. If you remember from our first sermon, Paul says, God has entrusted to me his ministry. And now Paul is saying, I'm now entrusting that to you, Timothy. And we're actually going to see, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, we're actually going to see in 2 Timothy, when we get there in several weeks, that Paul then tells Timothy, what I have entrusted to you, now you are to entrust to other faithful men. So what we see is this, this procedure of discipleship, this ongoing generation to generation leadership, passing on leadership to others, entrusting the ministry to others. So Paul is doing that. I was trying to think of a way of, of demonstrating this, and there's a lot of different places you could go to get a picture of what this looks like. You can go to artisan craftsmanship. You could go to uh, the labor field and think about you know, generational people who have worked for generations in mechanics or uh, tire companies. We have a local tire company that's been passed on from generation to generation. And so there's a lot of different places you could go for an example of this. But one that I was reminded of this past week is of the Sweetgrass Basket Makers of Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. What you have there in the Gullah tradition is you have mostly, predominantly, women who have passed on this tradition of basket making in the area of Charleston, South Carolina. It was started back when slaves were taken out of West Africa and they were brought to Charleston, South Carolina, and on these plantations, they started making the baskets that they had learned how to make in their homeland. And they have passed that on for the last 300 years from generation to generation, mother to daughter, grandmother to granddaughter, on and on and on and on. 
one lady, if you want to watch a short documentary, her name is Mary Jackson. And, and she learned this from her mother. And now she's in her older age and she's passing it on to others. One who has taken this tradition and really made it, you know, with social media and, and, and all the technology today, has really made it nationally known. His work is actually in the Smithsonian, is a guy by the name of Corey Alston. And he's got baskets in the Smithsonian. He's been nationally recognized on different TV channels. And so what you get is this beautiful piece of art, this basket, that because one generation mentored and taught the next generation, and they kept passing this on, entrusting this tradition to others, that you get this, this faithful tradition of sweetgrass basket making. And that's a picture of discipleship, isn't it? When Jesus has told us to make disciples, what that means is you're teaching and mentoring them in the same way that Jesus taught and mentored his disciples, and you're passing that on from generation to generation, making disciples of all nations. So that's what Paul is doing. He's entrusting to Timothy the charge that he received from God. And so what is that? He says, wage the good warfare. Now, you've, maybe you've read this in a different language or a different translation, and you hear the phrase, fight the good fight, right? And we're actually going to get that in chapter 6. The reason the ESV translate, I just found that, this out this past week as I was studying. The reason the ESV translate this phrase different in chapter 1 and chapter 6 is because he actually is using different words in the Greek. And when he gets to chapter 6, you're going to see when he says fight the good fight, that really has to do with like this individual boxing match type of picture. But in warfare, what do you have? You have armies against armies. And that is the picture we have here. This is, this is like a general. You are the general of a group of fighters, Timothy. Wage the good warfare. Fight the good fight, but fight it as you have been called as a pastor leading many others in this fight. And so that's the picture. He's waging the good warfare. And what is this warfare against? Well, I want to give you three examples of enemies that are hinted at here. The first is that we are at war with ourselves. Where do we get that? He uses the term holding faith and a good conscience. In the first chapter, we've already seen that Paul emphasizes having true doctrine and having a good conscience and a sincere faith. So he's reminding Timothy again, if you're going to lead a church, if you're going to be a pastor making disciples, and if you're going to wage war against our enemies, the first enemy is yourself. you got to ask yourself, do I really believe this stuff? All this stuff that I'm getting up here and preaching to you, all the stuff that you're trying to share with your neighbors, or you're trying to teach your children do you actually believe this stuff? Do you actually believe that this is God's word inspired and given to us by him and that every single part of it is trustworthy and true? Do you believe that? Do you believe it's his authoritative word inspired? Do you believe that Jesus really is the son of God who came in the flesh and died for sinners that anyone who places their faith in him will be forgiven and inherit eternal life, including you? Do you believe that? If you believe 
then you will be able to teach others with a genuine faith. But then the other phrase he uses is a good conscience. And we already hit on this a little bit a couple weeks ago, but again, a good conscience, what does that mean? It means you're not only believing this stuff to be true, but in practice, you are living under its authority. You're walking with Christ in repentance and faith, acknowledging all of your failings, all of your sins, all of your mess-ups, all of the skeletons in all of your closets, and you're bringing them to the Lord and in other places of safe confession. You're clearing your conscience of all possible guilt so that you can serve in freedom. Really believing the gospel that God is a savior for sinners like yourself. And so if you have a seared conscience because of lingering guilt, lingering unconfessed and dealt with sin, you're only going to be able to serve half-heartedly others. Or if you have a weak conscience, one that isn't able to recognize all the sins in your life, and and you're kind of excusing those things or denying those things, again, you will only be able to serve to a certain extent. But the more you believe and rest and understand the gospel for you, walking in repentance and faith, the more you'll be able to communicate the gospel of grace to others who need to hear it too, after you have heard it for yourself. And so you're at war within yourself, constantly fighting against sin, constantly walking with Jesus in repentance and faith, but constantly looking to the cross as the satisfaction for every part of who you are. So you are at war with yourself. You're also at war with the world. We see this um, when he's talking about Hymenius and Alexander. What he's already talked about in chapter 1 is that there are some uh, who have been in the church, certain persons, as he says it, certain persons in the church who are teaching false doctrine. And so whether it's in the church or in the world, what you're going to get is you're going to get a lot of bad teaching out there. And so we're also at war with others in the world. We're at war against false doctrine. We're at war to a certain extent with bad cultural teaching. And so let me me give you an example, okay? Some of you are really going to love this. I just prayed in the kingdom prayer for our leaders. And I am willing to bet that really made some of you squirm. Am I right? I'm willing to bet it really made some of you uncomfortable. But that's what we're told to do. And and we would rather go to Facebook and share stuff and post stuff and say stuff than we would follow Scripture. Right? That's bad cultural teaching that we're just soaking in. But the Bible says pray for your leaders. And, And... Listen, if you think your leaders are bad, (laughs) Timothy, his leader was Nero, Roman emperor who was persecuting Christians not 20 years later. Okay? So if we can be told to pray for our leaders, if 
Timothy can be told to pray for his leaders, so can we. That's just one example of how we have soaked in the world's teaching versus what, Bi- what the Bible has taught us. And you can go all over the place for that, right? You can talk about uh, cosmetics, superficiality. You can talk about um, phone use. You can talk about all kinds of things where the world is showing us what our life is meant to be like. And the Bible gives us a whole different picture, right? And so we are fighting against the world, but also we're fighting against the devil, and this category, what the categories I'm breaking down, you can also look over at Ephesians 2, it breaks this down. But what we're talking about is the world, the flesh, and the devil. You've ever heard that breakdown of our enemies? So we're also fighting against Satan. Where do we see that? Well, look at what Paul says at the end of verse 20. He says, Hymenius and Alexander, I have handed them over to Satan. Now, the picture of that, we also get... In Corinthians, when Paul is talking about church discipline, if you were to go over to Corinthians, I think it's, I forgot to write it down, I think it's uh, 1 Corinthians 5, 5. So if you were to go over to 1 Corinthians 5, 5, he's talking about church discipline. And when he's talking about this one specific person in the church who is not repenting, Paul says, hand him over to Satan. What is he saying? He's saying, excommunicate him. Give, give him, give him over which is the last step of what we call church discipline. We're making disciples, right? Part of that is holding one another accountable, leading and correcting with the word of God, exhorting others to walk in repentance and faith. When someone who is a member of the church is not doing that and not demonstrating, after a long process, okay, long process of prayer and exhortation, asking this person to come to Christ in repentance, to, to acknowledge where they are wrong in this, in this grievous sin, if, it's that, if at some point it's clear this person is not going to repent, you, you remove them from the rolls. And what you're saying, in a sense, is we don't see any evidence that this person is a believer in Christ. We're handing them back over to Satan. And that's not to be done lightly. That is serious. Because what you're saying is, if, if this person doesn't repent, they're going to hell. The domain of Satan. You see, you see how serious this is? But that's what Paul is saying. These two specific... Imagine being named specifically in the Bible. In, in inspired eternal scripture, right? Imagine being named in the Bible as two that Paul has handed over to Satan. That's scary, isn't it? And yet, that's what Timothy and we, as the church, are also called to. With all seriousness and sobriety, we are called to serve against ourself, to fight against ourself, against the world, and against Satan, who would love for this church to fail. Who would love to break your marriages apart. Who would love for your children to go wayward? The Satan, Satan hates what we're doing this morning. He hates it. You believe he's out there? Hating corporate worship? Hating the fellowship of believers? Hating the preaching of God's true word? Satan hates what we are doing, and he's fighting against us. So the first thing to acknowledge is that we're at war. Now, if we are at war with ourselves, 
with the world and with the devil, what are we to do? Just buck up, right? Get stronger. Read your Bible more. Go evangelize. Go fight against the world. Go fight against the, against the devil. Is that what it says? No, it says, therefore, first of all, this isn't like number one on a list of to-dos, right? This is primarily your first priority, Timothy, in this war is that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Now, I don't want to get too detailed here because you could say that maybe every single one of these words of prayer Paul uses for a certain reason, but the truth is we are not here, Paul's not here, and we can't say, why, why did you put all of these down, okay? We can get some general understandings of what all these different words mean. Supplications is specific requests. Prayers is a general term for all types of prayers. Intercessions is when you're praying on behalf of someone else. And then thanksgiving is you're giving thanks to God for what he has already answered, for what he might do. But really, it's, it's an acknowledgement that all things fall under his will, under his control. So we're, we're going to pray with an attitude of thanksgiving, which is really submission, right? Trusting God to do what is best for us and for the world. And so we pray, but we pray for all people. I guarantee you, he doesn't tell us specifically, so I'll say I'll almost guarantee you. Um, Paul prayed for Hymenaeus and Alexander a lot. He probably prayed for them a lot before handing them over to Satan. And he prays for Timothy. And he prays for the churches. And we are to pray for everyone, even our enemies. Our worldly enemies, those who disagree with us, those who seem to be against our intention, we pray for them. And what does he say? Even for kings and all who are in high positions. Again, I'm not going to go back over that. I've already been over that. But you've seen an example and you've heard an example of that this morning. Praying for all of our leaders and enemies and for all people. Now, why are we to pray for them? And what are we to pray for them? Paul says, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. What is our primary prayer when we're praying for people? For their salvation. Let, let me give you another example. If you've got, if you know of a husband and wife who are having massive conflict, and their, their marriage is on the edge of falling apart. They're barely hanging on. And you are led to pray for them. And let's say they claim to be believers, okay? But maybe that's not apparent. The first thing you pray for them is that they would really believe the gospel. That they would really walk with Jesus in repentance and faith. Why? Because they, the more they understand their sins and how Jesus has satisfied and forgiven them of their sins, the more they'll be able to acknowledge their sins to the other and forgive the other for how they have sinned against them. If they don't believe the gospel, they've got no power to begin with. Do you believe that? 
We believe gospel-centered marriage is the, the, the one thing that's going to help in those cases to bring marriages back together in reconciliation. If you don't have the gospel, you've got a weak foundation for marriage in the first place. And that's just, again, one example. You can talk about your relationship with your kids. My, my kid just has no respect for me, doesn't obey. Well, when was the last time you prayed for their salvation? Okay? I'm not saying, like, there's not problems after you get saved, right? There's all kind of problems after you get saved. But if you don't have a relationship with Christ, you're going to have a lot more, and there's not a strong foundation to start with. If you've got leaders who are corrupt, you can pray, Lord, get them out of there. Next vote, get, them, get rid of them. Or you can start praying for their salvation. That they would know Jesus and walk with him in repentance and faith. So the first thing we pray for people is salvation. Why? Because God desires that all people get saved. Now, before you go into a reformed doctrine of election on me, let's just remember this is the same Paul who wrote the same church, Ephesians 1. So, you know, there's not like a conflict of interest here, okay? But it somehow in the mind and heart of God, we're also told in 2 Peter that he desires that no one should perish. That he has a heart for all people to come to saving faith in Christ. And that is what we are told to pray for people. Regardless of the outcome, we don't know God's plan. We can't choose the elect, right? Sometimes I wish I could, but I can't. We pray for all people to come to a saving knowledge of the truth in Jesus Christ. For there is one God, I'm in verse 5, one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the t testimony given at the proper time. So we pray for their salvation, but then we also pray for their sanctification. So what I'm not saying is we don't pray for specific situations in people's lives. But as we pray for so-and-so to get well, you know, they're sick, um, they're, they're bound to their bed, let's pray for their healing. But then you've got others who lost their job, you pray for them to find a job. All that's good, but that should also fall under the umbrella of praying for their salvation and praying for their sanctification. What do I mean? Lord, as this person has no job, help them to learn how to trust you even more. Lord, as this person is suffering in their sickness, help them to understand through their suffering that they are suffering with Christ who has suffered for them. And Lord, if you bring them to a place of healing, help them through that to be able to comfort others as you have comforted them. You're praying that God wouldn't just fix the situation, but that he would sanctify people through the process, whatever his will is for them. Do you see that? And so, we're, again, we're submitting in thanksgiving. We're submitting and saying, Lord, have your way with us. We're praying for you to intercede, but have your way, and we're going to give thanks, whatever the situation. So, we're praying for their salvation. We're praying for their sanctification. And we're doing this in and through Jesus, who is our mediator. This is why it's become so popular to tag, right? In Jesus' name, amen. And I, I got to admit, Sometimes I say that without thinking. It's a part of my routine. But literally, our prayers are only effectual. They only get to the Father because of what Jesus has done for us. He has made a way to the Father 
through his ransom, through his mediation. He is interceding for us at the right hand of God the Father. He is our mediator, and so it's through Christ that we have confidence. We can approach the throne of grace with confidence. That's what Hebrews tells us. We have confidence that God hears our prayers because we go through Christ, who has made a way. He hears every single one of the prayers of his people because Jesus has made a way to the Father. So we pray. We pray with confidence. We pray for all people. We pray for salvation for people and sanctification for people. And we do this in faith and, again, with a clear conscience. So, again, what, let me before I move on to keep praying, right? It's kind of hard to preach this because I've got two points that are essentially the same. But before I move on to my last point, what does it mean to pray with faith? How do we pray with faith? Well, let me put it this way. If you don't believe that God the Father is who he says he is, a loving Father who desires fellowship with you, you're not going to pray. If you don't believe that Jesus has done what he said he has done, which has made a way for you to come into the Father's presence, you're not going to pray. And if you don't believe the Holy Spirit who has been promised to work in us and for us to be our helper, if you don't believe the Holy Spirit has any power, you're not going to pray. But if you believe you have a loving Father, that's faith. If you believe you have a Savior who has made a way into the throne room of God, that's faith. And if you believe that there is a spirit of power at work in us and in the world who has been called our helper, ready to help every believer, that's faith, you will then see the importance and power of prayer. You see what I'm saying? I was watching a video interview this past week with Tim and Kathy Keller. Pastor uh, Tim's a pastor in the PCA, his wife. Tim and Kathy Keller, they were doing a Q&A, and at one point... Um, the question was, how do we prioritize prayer? And they gave some practical helps, but then at the end, Tim, he basically, notice how I call him Tim on a first-name basis, right? Um, uh, Tim Keller, Pastor Keller, says this. He says, we make time for what's important to us. If it's important to us, if we don't think we can live without it, we are going to make time for it. And so if prayer is important to you, if you can't live without your relationship with God on an ongoing basis, you will prioritize and make time for prayer. And if that hits you at all, then join the club. We pray when we know we have no other resource than God alone to help us. That's why some of our most powerful prayer times are when we reach a point of utter desperation. Conviction of sin, uh, suffering, sickness. When we get to a point, parenting, when we get to a point when we say, I can't do it, that's when we're ready to pray. That's what every prayer is. Acknowledging, God, I can't do it without you. I need your help. And so we pray because we're at war and prayer is our most powerful rep. Uh, weapon against this war, in this war, and then we keep praying. 
So we pray, and then we keep on praying. Look at verses 7 and 8 real quick. Paul brings back up that he is a preacher and an apostle. For this I was appointed, a preacher and an apostle. He's, he's talking about you know, bringing people to salvation in Christ and, and seeing their sanctification at work. I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. In other words, you know, to emphasize what he's saying, and a teacher. So Paul is bringing up three of his offices, right? He's, he's a preacher, he's an apostle, and he is a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So what do we see in this? In this verse, he's bringing up ministry, right? I'm a preacher, I'm an apostle, I'm a teacher. And so then he says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. What Paul is doing is he's throwing prayer in as another form of ministry. Prayer is ministry. It's a part of what we've been called to do as believers and as pastors and as disciples of Christ. We are to pray for others, pray for ourselves, pray for our leaders, pray for the world, pray for all people, right? And that is ministry. Just like evangelism is ministry, sharing the gospel with others, sharing your testimony, serving others. Prayer is ministry. But why is it such a hard ministry? Because it's the one that people don't see. We like people to see what we do, right? True service and love and ministry for others is when you love and care and do for them when nobody else can see it. And that's what prayer is. Now, yes, you have public times of prayer too, right? But when you're praying for others in ministry, genuinely, that's when what you really feel about people starts to reveal itself. Whether you really care if they come to saving faith in Christ. Whether you really care if their marriage stays together. Whether you really care if they get a new job. It will start to show up in whether or not you pray for them. And how you pray for them. You see what I'm saying? Prayer is ministry. It's an overflow of our love for our neighbor. So for Paul, prayer was a ministry. Uh, Richard Baxter, a pastor, theologian, Puritan, said, how sad, I'm paraphrasing because I couldn't find the quote in the book that I was looking through. Um, He said, how sad and prideful it is that preachers think they could get up to the pulpit on a Sunday morning without having prayed over their sermon. That was convicting when I first read it. That, that I think in my own gifting and strengths, think that what I do here on Sunday morning could actually bear fruit unless the Lord was empowering it. And that's true for all of our ministry, right? Whatever, whatever situation, relationship, work situation, if we're not praying before we enter into those positions and those places, praying for our people, praying for those that we lead and work with, praying for our families, we, ex- we expect fruit to be born We expect change to happen without even asking the one who has been promised to to bring about change to do anything. That reveals the pride in our hearts, doesn't it? And our lack of dependence and faith on who God is and what he's promised to do. And then he says, I 
desire then that in every place, that another way you say it, every situation, whether you're at home or in public, at work or on the phone, one of the things that has always encouraged me the most, I have a few guys specifically sometimes that when I'm on, or um, uh, ladies that when I'm on the phone with them and something has come up in conversation, they won't let me hang up until they have prayed. You ever had that happen, or do you do that? You pray on the phone. The first few times it happened, it felt awkward, right? We're not together. You know, I don't know how to do this. And sometimes I've done that, and I feel awkward initiating it. But that's, that's a place, isn't it, on the phone? In every place and in every situation, pray. And he does speak. Now, this doesn't mean women shouldn't pray. We're going to get to women next week. That's going to be a lot of fun. Um, yeah, if you know what I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, but what does he say? Men. I desire that men should pray. Now, why is this? I think it's because it's really hard for men to pray. Because men don't like to admit that they need help. Right? I was at, um, uh, yeah, I'll say, I was at Bojangles this past week doing some sermon work. And two couples specifically were in there. Um, two older couples, and they both stopped and they prayed before their meal. And in both situations, the woman prayed. Now, you know, maybe they take turns and, you know, this was whatever, Friday, so Friday's my day to pray. I don't know. But I think that happens a lot more than maybe we're willing to admit. That, that the women kind of take leadership in these things, right? Spiritually, in prayer, in dependence, in acknowledging their weakness, the women lead. And Paul is saying, men... I desire that you should pray in every situation and in every place. Lead with humility, lead with dependence, lifting holy hands. What is this idea of lifting hands? Well, it's a sign of surrendering, right? I give up. It's a sign of praise, and it's a sign of reaching out for help. Imagine a child who's reaching up for their their daddy to pick them up, right? Their, Their hands are up. So you know, lifting hands is it's surrender, it's asking for help, and, and it's giving praise. So we lift our hands rather than angry, getting angry and quarreling. So you know, you're in a conflict with someone. Your temptation is to really show that person up in uh, this great comeback or this clever, you know, whatever, clever remark. Or uh, you could go to politics, you could go to social media, you could go all over the place. What is our tendency? Our tendency is one-upmanship. To prove that person wrong or to humble that person rather than be humbled. And prayer is self-humbling. It's saying, Lord, I'm not going to convince them of anything. I'm giving it over to you. I'm not going to be able to change that person's heart. So you've got to do it. I'm going to ask you to do that for them. So instead of getting angry and quarreling with others, we pray for them. Which is humility, it's humbling, but it's what God has given us in this warfare. So let me close with this. Um, We have gone too long as a church with a low value on prayer. And that's because of me. Okay, primarily, that, that falls on me. That I have not led well. I have not created enough opportunities. 
I have not publicized those opportunities that are available, but I have not led well in, in developing a culture of prayer in our church. And I'm, I'm making efforts with the help of the Lord to change that. But I need your help. <laughs> okay? I can't do that on my own. Um, I need others to show up when we say we're going to pray. I need people to show up. Um, I, don't, I don't say that to guilt you or anything, but, you know, Wednesday night, a, a significant time on Wednesday night now is committed to praying, prayer. Um, once heard a pastor say, if you really want to have uh, an intimate, close uh, setting for a group, like if you don't want a whole lot of people there, just say you're doing a prayer night, right? And then it'll be small in attendance and it'll be nice and intimate. Just say it's a prayer night. Um, and that is true, isn't it? And so if you want to pray with us on Wednesday night, come on Wednesdays. But then the other thing I want to invite you to, every Sunday morning at 10 o'clock, we pray before the service. And that is primarily right now, that's people who are involved in the service, so readers and worship team and tech team. But anyone is welcome to that. I'm inviting you. I'm announcing that. If you want to come on Sunday mornings at 10 o'clock to pray with us for worship specifically, Come join us, okay? I would love for you to be there and to contribute during that time. But then in our meetings, in our phone conversations, in all these things, let's look for opportunities to pray. Um, Jack Miller, who I've quoted before, once said to, in a sermon, this was great. Um, he said in a sermon, our church started, he was a church planner, our church started with prayer. It was the first thing we ever did as a church was we had a small group of people praying together and the church just multiplied. People were coming to saving faith. It was a powerful work of the Spirit. And he said, I really believe it was because we started and we focused on prayer for all those years. And then he said, in a sermon, he said, if you've come to our church in the last two years and you have just, you know, kind of a weak prayer life, you are weakening our church. Whew! That's strong. How's that for an attractional sermon, right? Um, now, I bring that up because that doesn't describe us, okay? In a way, we're probably the opposite way around. I, I did not focus on prayer strongly enough, often enough. I, I didn't focus on depending on prayer um, in our ministry. And so as your pastor, I'm sorry, I just want to acknowledge that and apologize. But I would love to see that change. In my heart and in the heart of this church, I would love to see that change. But what I'm saying is I'm humbly asking you to help. You know, if, if this is just me deciding to, you know, have this revolution of prayer, um, that's great. I mean, if God needs to do that in my heart and in my life, that's good. I don't want to stop him from doing that. But if he could do that in this church... Man, how awesome would that be? Um, another quote just came to mind. Charles Spurgeon, one time he was giving two young men a tour of his church. Charles Spurgeon was known for having a massive ministry leading people to saving faith in Christ. Awesome gospel preacher. Thousands converted under his, his ministry and leadership. He was giving two young men who uh, had aspirations of being in ministry uh, a tour of the church. And he said, do you want to see the furnace room? Um, or they, you know, heat the church and warm the church up, and um, they said, oh, sure. 
So he goes down into the basement, and he opens a door, and there's this small room, and it's just a group of people huddled around praying. He said, that's what, that's what empowers the ministry of this church. They're, they're, he had a regular rotation of people constantly praying for the ministry of the church. Um, Jack Miller had something similar. So I would love to see something like that at some point in the ministry of this church. But would you just pray for us? Pray for me. And would you join us? When there are opportunities to pray, join us. Not out of guilt, just out of excitement out of anticipation for what the Lord might do. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your love for us as sinners. Thank you that you have called us and saved us by your grace and promised us your Holy Spirit that that we could walk with you and depend on you and that you've promised to work in and through us. Acknowledge this in Jesus' name, who has made a way for us to come to you. In Jesus' name, amen.